a brand new series called Down to Earth. We're going to go for three weeks. And, you know, um, I like to start with something funny. And I heard the story about this man who was having a conversation with God. And he, he was speaking to God. And he said, God, you know, I have a question for you. What is a million years like to you? God said, well, a million years to me is like a second to you. He goes, okay, well, what's a million dollars like to you? God said, well, a million dollars to me is like a penny to you. So the man thought about it for a minute. He goes, well, God, since we're talking, could I borrow a penny? And God said, sure, in just a second. <laughs> right. Come on, you know, I mean, no, God's ways are higher than our ways. All right, I love that little story. Would you stand to your feet and welcome, as you do, all of our online family that's joining us today. We have people in Colorado, San Diego, Montana. Come on, welcome all your church family that's joining us from around the country and around the world. Our new theme for the week and for the next few weeks is Down to Earth. We're going to talk about Christmas. I want you to read this passage with me, all of you online. Why don't you do the same? John chapter 1, verse 14. This verse summarizes the concept of Christmas and this idea of down to earth. Let's read it together. Ready? So the Word became human and made His home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. See, Christmas is that the Word, which is Jesus, came down to earth. God took the divine and He brought it to humanity so that we could see his glory, we could see his faithfulness. And that's what we're going to talk about the next few weeks. Let's close our eyes. Holy Spirit, as we're taking a moment to pray, I want to lift up one of our ushers. His mom went into surgery right now. Lord, and I just declare right now that you would move in that situation. Touch David's mom. I pray that the surgeons would be directed by their hands. I pray that you would guide them and that the surgery would go well. We pray for recovery. We pray for healing. I pray for peace over David and his family right now in Jesus' name. I also pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive your truth. Say this with me. Say, Holy Spirit, speak to me in Jesus' name. Come on, somebody shout amen. Amen. You may be seated today. You know, I looked up the phrase down to earth. Have you ever heard that phrase? Oh, he's so down to earth. Or what? She's down to earth. What does that phrase mean? Well, in de definition, it means to be humble. It means um, to not be pretentious or better than. But I love this definition. Definition. It means it relates to normal people. When you're down to earth, you relate to normal people. You see, Christmas is about the incarnation. Some of you, as soon as you heard that word incarnation, you thought of Nacho Libre. And inside you started singing, Incarnacio. Come on, anybody remember that movie? This is not about Incarnacio, the character in Nacho Libre. This is the word incarnation, which means this. It means that God came down to earth and wrapped himself in human flesh. You see, God came to earth so that he could understand us, so that we could see him. We could see his character. We could see his power. We could see his nature so that we could then be like him. And so... As I was praying about this new series, I thought, let's talk about the character, the nature. Let's talk about Christmas, the who God is and how he came to earth. And so what I want to do over the next few weeks is I want to tell the Christmas story. And as we tell the Christmas story, I'm going to take some of the people from that story 
and show us the nature and the character of God and how we can walk in that and be like that. And so I want you to go with me in your Bibles, your phones, to Matthew chapter 1. And I'm going to point out one character, one person in this story. His name is Joseph. And we're going to talk about Joseph this week. We may even talk about him next week. This is how Jesus, the Messiah, was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. Now, as I began to think about Christmas, I I learned a few things as I look at Joseph's life and I look at this story of how God's character and nature came down to earth. And I want to bring the first point to you. If you're taking notes, write this down. Point number one about it is simply this. Christmas brings righteousness down to earth. I want everyone to say that with me. Ready? Christmas brings righteousness down to earth. Now, before we dive into righteousness and what that means, let me start by saying, I want to talk about Joseph. And what do we know about Joseph? Well, I'm going to share you some, with you some things we know. One thing we know about Joseph is that he was a carpenter. The word carpenter in the Greek in the New Testament, it's the word tekton, and it means this, it means someone who is a handyman with wood. It's not a general contractor. In fact, the word architecton is kind of like the combination of an architect slash general contractor, and that was someone that would oversee the design and building of a home, whereas a carpenter, tekton, just did woodwork. That was his primary focus. He would often take care of furniture that was broken and fix it. He would build yokes, things that the plow, that the the oxen would be in to plow a field. We might talk about that later on um, in next week's message. So he wasn't highly skilled or highly trained. It was usually something his father did and he took up that and he learned and was trained by his father. So he was a carpenter. Here's the second thing we know. He was uneducated. Most of the people that worked as carpenters did not have any formal education. So we have a a blue-collar, uneducated, and thirdly, we know, poor man. We know that Joseph was poor. How do we know Joseph was poor? Well, because when Mary and Joseph went to the temple to circumcise their son, here's what we know. They offered two turtle doves. That tells us something, because if you had money or wealth, you would offer what the law required, a lamb. But if you were poor, you would offer two turtle doves because it was way less expensive. So we know that Joseph was blue collar, just a normal guy. We know that he was uneducated and we know that he was poor. So I began to ask myself the question, God, why then did you choose Joseph? Can I stop first of all and say, isn't it cool to know that God entrusted his only son to not the most wealthy, the most educated, but to just a normal guy? Boy, didn't that give us hope? Didn't that help us to understand the nature and the love of God? Why did he choose Joseph? Well, there's a phrase that I believe tells us why. Let's go back to a verse we read in Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verse 19 says this. It says, Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a, what does it say? He was a righteous man. And then it tells us how he was righteous, and I'll explain it here in a minute. He was righteous because he did not want to disgrace her publicly, So he decided to break the engagement quietly. Joseph was a righteous man. Now let me just stop and say, if we want to understand righteousness, we need to look at Jesus. Because Jesus was the picture, the example of righteousness. We know that every one of us are not righteous. The Bible says no one is righteous, no not one. 
Not one. Our righteousness is like a filthy rag. That's what the scripture says. So we're not righteous. Who is righteous? Jesus. Jesus came down. He was perfect. The word righteous in the Greek, it means this. It means to be in right standing with God. It means to follow the principles so that you're in right standing with God. None of us can live up to the law or always do good because we're all going to sin. We're all going to make mistakes. So Jesus is the model of righteousness, and yet God calls Joseph righteous. Now, first of all, why did he call him righteous? Well, first of all, because Jesus hadn't come. And so there's something about Joseph that we need to see that God is trying to give us a picture of what righteousness can be in our lives. Now, as I begin to dive into that, God called him righteous, and here's what struck me interesting, is God called him righteous, and then immediately afterwards, it tells us that he doubted. Because here's what it says, he was going to divorce her. Why? Because he didn't believe her. He didn't believe in the virgin birth. He believed that she had slept with someone, she had concocted some story that it was God, and so because of that, he, he was going to give her the benefit of the doubt by divorcing her, divorcing her quietly. He was a doubter. Isn't it good to know that even a doubter can be righteous? Come on. How many here have ever doubted? Come on, a lot of you doubted you could raise your hand right now. That was, I'm like, I can't do it. I don't think I can do it, so you didn't even try. I love that the first person who heard about the virgin birth didn't believe it. And Mary was the one who told him. If you're here and you've ever doubted, I want you to understand that it's human nature to doubt. But yet God can still make us righteous. He can even use a doubter. Come on, somebody say amen. So let's talk about how we know that Joseph was righteous. How do we know Joseph was righteous? Well, you have to dive into the first century marriage practice to understand. You see, in the time of Jesus, what would happen is that there would be a, a young girl, a, a young child who was a girl, a young child who was a boy, and when they were children, here's what would happen. The parents would get together and go, I think they'd be a good match. Most people were married because their parents had matched them. And so as they grew up, there was this informal agreement between the both parents that when the children were older, they were going to get married. Well, when the woman or when the girl finally reached puberty, right after she reached puberty, then it would get serious and there would be a more formal arrangement between the two. And then usually there would be a year of engagement and then they would get married. And so what would happen in this formal agreement is that there was a thing called the mohar. The mohar is a Hebrew word and basically it means the bride price. So what would happen is the groom's family would give a financial gift to the bride's family and it was held for the bride. Now, how much was it? Well, According to some commentators, they said that it was about a, the equivalency of a one-bedroom home. So they would give, think about what a one-bedroom home would cost in Santa Clarita. That's what the family would give to the family of the bride. I may know things have changed. <laughs> now, why would they do that? Well, here was the logic behind it. You see, this was a patriarchal society. And a patriarchal society means that the, the, the father, the patriarch of the family, everyone under him what belonged basically to him, and they all worked for the family. So imagine now, he's going to let one of his workers, one of his daughters, leave the family, which means he's going to lose an entire lifetime of 
income or resource that she would have given to the family. So the family of the groom would pay a bride's price for the loss of the bride, of the daughter. See that? And what would happen is that then would be given to the family and held, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. So first of all, there was the mohar. Here's the second thing you need to know. There was the matin. What is the matin? Well, that's a Hebrew word, and the word matin stands for the amount that the groom, because not only did his, the groom's parents give a big chunk to the family, but then the groom would then take several months of his salary or wages, collect it together, and pay it to the family of the bride as well, and that was held. Think of, the, think of it this way. It was kind of like when you go and you buy a wedding ring, and you get engaged, and you give the wedding ring to the bride-to-be, right? It belongs to her. And if you're a good guy, it's a big ring. Come on. <laughs> it's several months of salary. You're paying on it for a long, long time. Anyway, so, so that, was the mo, that was the mohar and that was the man, matin. During that year of engagement, they were not allowed to sleep together. During that year of engagement, also the groom's family would give gifts, lavish gifts to the bride's family. And those things were all held in reserve until finally the marriage were to take place. And when the marriage was ready to take place, it was time to take the formal agreement and make it legal. And that's when you get to the third word we're going to look at in, in the Hebrew, and that's the word uh, kedubah. And the word kedubah, what that was, was basically a document that was created by the lawyers of the time called scribes. You've heard in scripture when you read, it says the Pharisees and the scribes. Scribes were like lawyers today. And so they would put this agreement together, and in the agreement, here's what they were saying. The groom was saying, I'm going to sign off, my wife and I are going to sign this agreement, and when we do, we will then will consummate the marriage and be married, so I'm committing to take care of my bride financially. So if I die, she gets to keep the mohar and the matin and all the gifts that were given, or if I even change my mind and divorce her, she gets to keep all that as alimony and child support. Think of it in modern day terms. So this kedubah, when they got married then, basically consummated the marriage and said, I'm now committing in the family, kept that for the wife so that if anything happened to the husband or if he divorced her, she had a way. Because she see, if that didn't happen, she would be left destitute without anything. Now, some of you say, well, Pastor Jerry, what, what's the big deal about all of this? Why are we talking about this as it relates to righteousness? Well, first of all, let me tell you what Joseph could have done. Joseph could have said, I'm going to divorce her. And he could have went to the, the elders of the city and he said, you know what? My wife has, has done something wrong. She's an adulterer. She slept with someone. And so I'm divorcing her. And when that happened, when her pregnancy began to show everyone would know that his accusation was true and according to Jewish law if she was an adulterer she was to be stoned to death in front of her home now fortunately in that time that law wasn't really upheld because they were under the, Ro the Roman government and the Roman government wouldn't allow that to take place in most situations but what would happen is then the mohar and the matin and all the gifts all the money that had been given by the family would then go back to the family and Mary would be left with nothing, would have no money. And not only would she have no money, but then she would carry the scarlet letter of shame and an adulterer and no one would ever marry her, no one would ever want her. 
she would carry that shame, that poverty, and that guilt for the rest of her life. So Joseph said, I don't want to do that. Now, now think about it for a minute. He's doing this because he doesn't believe that the Holy Spirit impregnated her. She's done him wrong. She's the one that's, that's done the wrong thing here, not Joseph. And yet, even though she had done the wrong thing, here's what he says. He said, I'm going to divorce her privately. Now, let me explain what that was like. To divorce her privately meant he went back to the, the, the town and he said, I've changed my mind. We're not going to get married. And then, later on, when her pregnancy began to show, here's what would be assumed. Joseph slept with her and was intimate with her and then changed his mind. Now she's pregnant. What a dishonorable man. And so now he would carry the shame. He would carry the dishonor. And not only that, his family would never get back what they'd given to her. He would never get back what had been given to her. And for the rest of his life, he would carry the punishment, the shame, the penalty, and the price. Even though she had done wrong, he decided to do right. And what we find in this story is that God says he was a righteous man. Why? Because I think in this story, here's what righteousness is. Down to earth, what's the message? It's simply this idea that righteousness sacrifices for others. Righteousness sacrifices for others. You see, in this passage, here's the bottom line. Righteousness isn't about an outward purity. Righteousness isn't about how many times you go to church and what kind of church attendance you have. Righteousness isn't about what kind of strong prayer life you have and what a great worshiper you are. Righteousness is taking the high road. Righteousness is being willing to help those who are vulnerable Righteousness is sacrificing for those who don't deserve it and being willing to take the pain, being willing to offer forgiveness. Let me ask you a question. How many of you want to be righteous? Can I say that the message of down to earth that God is demonstrating to us is that maybe for you, righteousness is taking the high road in that argument with your spouse. Maybe righteousness for you is choosing to forgive someone even though they did wrong but they don't deserve to be forgiven but because the scripture says we forgive because we've been forgiven, it's taking the high road. Righteousness is saying, I'm willing to, to offer grace and mercy when you deserve judgment. I'm willing to show compassion. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, as he taught, he would always say, when you see me, you see the Father. But what's interesting is we think he's only talking about Father God. I think he's also talking about Father Joseph. Because remember the story when the woman was caught in adultery? And they brought her and threw her before Jesus and they said, the law requires that she be stoned. What do you say? And Jesus, I think, in his mind starts to think back to all the stories are heard about his dad, Joseph. When his mom was accused of being an adulterer. Instead of publicly disgracing her, he chose to forgive her. And so Jesus leans down in the dirt and he begins to write. And then he says, he who has sin, cast the first stone. And everyone dropped their stone and walked away. And he said, go, your sins are forgiven, sin no more. Could it be that Jesus demonstrated a level of compassion and grace and mercy, not just because God had sent him to earth, but because 
he saw modeled to him true righteousness because righteousness sacrifices for others. Come on, somebody say amen. I'll never forget, a while back there was a situation that took place with someone who was angry with me, felt that they wanted to to have a meeting so that they could work out some things. I didn't know there was conflict, but supposedly there was conflict, so I went to this meeting expecting to talk about how to work through whatever was going on. They brought several people with them, so I brought a couple pastors with me, and we sat down at the meeting, and as we sat down, as we got into the conversation, it quickly turned from, hey, here's a few things to be an opportunity to begin to voice their accusations against me. And then they went below the belt and they started talking about my wife and my kids and bringing accusations against them. Anybody ever have a moment? Come on. You can talk about me, but don't talk about my kids. Come on, that's out of the mouth of every mom. Come on, anybody know what I'm saying about? The meeting went along, and when it was over, one of the pastors came to me and said, Pastor Jared, I got really nervous when they went below the belt and started talking about your kids. But you know what? I was surprised and saw how you just decided to take the high road. And you didn't retaliate, because see, I actually had in my hand a list of facts of all kinds of things about their family and all the things that they had done that I had proof of. But I never brought it up. Now, I'm not saying that to make me look good. I'm saying it to say, isn't it awesome when God gives us His Spirit to allow us to have moments of righteousness? To say, I'm going to take the high road and not the low road. I'm going to give grace when there should be judgment. I'm going to give mercy And I want to say today, maybe what God is teaching you and I about Christmas is not that we're supposed to have a big tree and that we're just supposed to sing joy to the world, but that you and I are supposed to be people of righteousness. And righteousness in this story says, I'm going to do the right thing even if somebody's done the wrong thing. I'm going to be a person who takes the high road. Come on, somebody say amen. I'm going to be righteous. Christmas brings righteousness down to earth. I want to give you point number two. If you're taking notes, write this down. Second thing we learn is that Christmas brings God's mission down to earth. This is cool. I really like this part of the story. Let's go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Let me just stop and say that when God spoke to Joseph, every time he spoke to Joseph, he used a dream. There were four dreams that he had, and every dream was God's way of communicating with him. We'll talk more about that in in a little bit. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He says, hey, she's not lying, she's telling the truth. I know you didn't believe her, I know you're a doubter, but I'm here today to tell you that she was telling the truth. So do not be afraid to take her as your wife, for the child within her is conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him, you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, when I read that next part of the story, here's the first thing that came to my mind. Why did the angel say, don't be afraid? Now, I think the natural assumption often by commentators or people who read this 
maybe not commentators, but many of us who haven't done a lot of study, we read it and our first thought was, well, no, duh, it's because it was an angel. I mean, how would you feel if suddenly an angel shows up and says, don't be afraid. (laughs) But can I tell you what's interesting is he's not saying don't be afraid because of the angel. And by the way, you know, what's interesting is we think angel is some supernatural, ethereal, you know, being. But did you know that most of the time in the Bible, you know what an angel was? It was someone, it was, it was a, a supernatural being that looked just like you and me. In fact, did you know the Bible says that sometimes we need to be hospitable because we may not know it, but we're actually taking care of angels. In fact, let me just say it this way. Could it be that God wants to use you as an angel? Because the word angel there means messenger. Just a little nugget, throwing that in for you. So he says, don't be afraid. Now, what was he saying? He wasn't saying, don't be afraid of the angel. Here's what he was saying. Don't be afraid of your new mission. You thought you were just going to be a shepherd. I mean, sorry, you thought you were just going to be a, a, a carpenter. You thought you were going to take care of Mary, you're going to have a little house in Bethlehem, and you're going to do your thing, but there's a new plan. I have a different plan for your life than what you planned. Anybody figured that out sometimes with God? He says, so don't be afraid of the plan I have for you. In fact, my plan is that you're going to take care of my son, and you're going to raise him. Can I stop and say the message to you and I is simply this? Don't be afraid of God's mission for your life. At Higher Vision Church, our theme is what? To help people find God's vision for their lives. But our natural tendency is to be afraid. Our natural tendency is to say, God, I can't do that. What if I blow it? Or, God, I can't do that. I'm just, I'm uneducated and I don't have a lot of money and I'm just a blue-collar worker. I, I can't do that. And our natural tendency is to always have an excuse and always have a reason to say, God, I can't do what you call me to do because really the core of it is is that we're afraid you see God's plan often requires us to overcome our fear and to have faith what what is the mission that God is telling you to have I think if a shepherd or I'm sorry as a as a a carpenter if a carpenter can raise God's son then maybe you can take care of that foster child you didn't think you were going to be raising Maybe you can teach that Sunday school class that they ask you to do, but you feel inadequate to do. Maybe you can coach those kids on the field that you have no experience in that sport. That you can actually accomplish what God has placed in your life to do because He has a plan for you. He has a purpose for you beyond you just having a job and making some money. God has a purpose for your life, but if you're not careful, we'll live in fear. Can I tell you, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. And here's what he's saying today. It's down to earth so that we can all relate to it. Don't be afraid of God's mission for your life. Come on, somebody say amen. You can give that money that God's telling you to give. You can serve in that ministry that God's telling you to serve. I'll never forget when God spoke to me about planting Higher Vision Church. I was scared. Because it meant I was going to a city where I didn't have any friends. I was going to a city where I didn't have a job. I was going to a city where I didn't have any people. I was going to a city where we didn't have any buildings. 
He said, I want you to go on my mission. I called you to plant a church. And I was in a church and I, I, I was paid well. I had great friends. I, I had a wonderful home. I, I had a family. I had everything I needed. And God said, no, 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 no. Don't be afraid because I have a mission for you. And I'm so thankful today that I didn't walk in fear, but I walked in faith. Because Christmas brings God's mission down to earth. Come on, somebody say amen. I want to give you the last point. You all with me? Amen. Amen. Point number three is Christmas brings obedience down to earth. What is this and where do we find it in the story? Well, let's go on to Matthew chapter 1. So God shows up to Joseph and he said, I know you've been doubting. I know you want to divorce her privately. That's, that's honorable. You're, you're a righteous man. But she's telling the truth and I want you to follow my mission. I want you to take care of my son. I want you to raise him. And so Joseph woke up. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. Because here's the point. You ready? The immediacy of the response to obey is of the utmost importance. The immediacy of the response to obey is of the utmost importance. You know, here's why. Because this is the way it usually works. We're in a service like this and we get to the end and like for the last several weeks I've been talking about missions and that God wants to use all of us together to, to, to show up, right? And sometimes we can show up with generosity and so I'm challenging you to give to missions. And so we're in a service like that and suddenly the Holy Spirit starts speaking to our heart and, and, and saying, yeah, you need to do that. You need to give to missions. And so here's what we do, right? We say, I'm going to do that. I think that's the Lord. I'm going to do that. Then we grab the little brochure and put it in our pocket and go home. I'm going to wait and talk to my wife about it. And our intentions are good. We think it's a good idea, but then we lose the brochure. Life gets busy. And our I'm going to do that becomes the worst thing because... The immediacy of the response to obey is of the utmost importance. Let me ask a question. What is God asking you to do? Maybe you've been in this church for two years and you keep hearing him say it's time for you to get in a circle. But you always have a reason to not immediately obey. Maybe for two years he's been speaking to you about I want to start tithing. I want to give to God's kingdom. But there's always a trip coming up. There's always a birthday party. There's always something that happens. You see, I think this is a big deal, and here's why. Remember, God, the Bible says that God spoke to Joseph in dreams. Well, the second dream that he spoke to Joseph with, watch what happens. He tells Joseph, Joseph, you're in Bethlehem. Jesus has been born. You need to get up. In the morning, or not in the morning, but he says you need to get up and you need to move to Egypt. Now, you know, what could have happened is Joseph could have got up and said, oh man, that was a crazy dream. Whew, what did I have to eat last night? He could have even taken it seriously and went to Mary and said, Mary, I think God wants us to move to Egypt. We need to go, you know, and let's talk, let's, you know, we need to talk about this for a while. 
We need to work this out. In fact, you probably need to talk to your parents. I need to talk to my parents. In fact, you know what? I've got a lot of work right now as a carpenter. There's a, you know, the economy's kind of booming right now. Everybody's remodeling their houses, and I'm making all kinds of plows. And So let's do this. Over the next six months, I'm going to finish up all my work, and then, then, I'm gonna, then we'll move to Egypt because we need some money to get there anyway. So let, let's, let me ask you a question. What if Joseph would have procrastinated and not obeyed immediately? You know what would have happened? Herod, remember the story? He sent soldiers to kill all of the children two years of age and younger in Bethlehem. God's promise would have been aborted because the immediacy of the response to obey is of the utmost importance. Made me wonder, how many of us have had a promise of God that has been aborted in our lives, not because we're sinners, or not because that we're horrible people, or not because that, that we're bad people and we don't love God. It's because we just procrastinated. Come on, that's good preaching. Somebody say amen. It's getting a little close to home with all of us, isn't it? I'll never forget, I, I was... Uh, I was at a service one time and I felt like the Lord spoke to me and he wanted me to give. And the amount that he wanted me to give was a pretty large sum for us at the time. It was my, the amount of my last quarterly tax, taxes that I paid. It was that amount. So the Lord spoke to me, but I was playing the keyboard like these guys back here during the altar time. So as the Lord spoke to me, I'm like, okay, God, I'm going I'm to do that. But you know, I can't do it right now, God, because I'm worshiping you and I'm leading the church in worship. So the service ended and then I got in the car and I drove home. And when I got home, it was like all of heaven came down on me. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit said, I told you to give. Are you going to trust me? Are you going to obey? Are you going to procrastinate? And something inside me said, I can't wait. And I literally got in the car. I told my wife, I said, Devet, this is what the Lord said. What do you think? She's like, yeah, let's do it. I jumped in the car and I drove back down to the church. And when I got there, they had this special room where they counted all the money and there was, there was a vault to keep it there safe. And, you know, I want you to know at Higher Vision Church, we do things well. We have, have been audited by um, a, an external company every year. And one of the things they evaluate is that we take good care of your money. It's protected. You know, we don't even take it from one location to another without a security hired company to come and help us do it so that you know that what you're giving is safe and being taken care of. So that's what they were doing there. And so I went up to the room and I knocked on the door. And as I knocked on the door, the security person looked at me like, what is wrong with you? What are you doing? And I'm like, no, 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 don't shut the door. Don't shut the door. I got to give. I got to give. And I gave. Because I knew in my heart, even though I didn't understand it all, that the immediacy of the response to obey is of the utmost I didn't want God's promise to be aborted. I didn't want to miss the opportunity to be a part of God's kingdom financially. I'm going to end with this. I, I used to travel with my brother Wayman, and we would do camps over the summer when I was young. And I would speak in the morning. He would speak at night. And at the very last service of the last night, we would always do this sermon. And there was a drama, and he would preach and I would be in the drama, and the main character was the devil, and I had to play the devil, and I don't know why he always chose me for that part. <laughs> and here was the idea of the skit. There were 
a few demons and there was a, the devil and we were there strategizing how we were going to destroy God's purposes on the earth. And so here's how the skit went. I would sit down in my black robe and makeup and the demons were around me and I would go, we've gathered here today to determine how we're going to destroy the world and God's plan for mankind. And all the demons would then come up with ideas and one would go, oh, Satan, Satan, I know. And I'm like, what is it? What is your idea? And he would say, we'll use abortion. Abortion will be, and all the other demons would be like, yes, yes, abortion. And I'd, and I'd be like, that's a good idea. That's a very good idea. And then someone else, one of the other demons, somebody would be like, man, you make a really good demon, Pastor Jared. <laughs> And so some of the other demons would go, no, 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 I have a better idea. And by the way, demons talk like that, I think. And so <laughs> I've got a good idea. I know. And what is it? What's your idea? Racism. We'll use racism to destroy the world. And everyone's like, yes. <laughs> and they would all come up with some reason. And then at the very end of the skit, I would say, wait, I know I've got the best plan of all. And they'd say, yes, yes. I would say, we'll use, get ready for it tomorrow. And they're like, tomorrow, tomorrow. What does he mean tomorrow? And I would say, well, you guys remember the Bible. We all know it so well that God has not promised us tomorrow. So if we can just get people to procrastinate, they won't forgive their neighbor. They won't act in kindness. They won't confess their sin because the immediacy of the response to obey. Man, I feel the Holy Spirit. It's of the utmost importance.